This is the Partnership for the Arts talk show, where we talk art. Welcome to Where We Talk Art. This is your host, Victor Gartner, and today our guest is Frank D. Demizio. And Frank is a woodturner, and we're going to talk to him in just a moment right after this message. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us as we explore the world of art. You can find us on our Facebook page at Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show. Or you can find us on our new website at pftatalkshow.org. PFTA Talk Show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Hello, we are back, and once again, you're listening to Where We Talk Art, and as I said, our guest is Frank D. Demizio. Frank is an, an outstanding wood turner, or wood artist, and we are going to talk to him now for this next half hour to 40 minutes. Frank, welcome to Where We Talk Art. Thanks. I looked at your bio, and one of the things that surprised me, Frank, was you were born in Italy. I was, yes. I uh, didn't spend much of my life there, but I was born in Italy... Our family immigrated to Canada when I was three years old. Oh, uh, so, why, why did they decide to uh, go to Canada? That's well, a cold place, and Italy sounds like a nice place for nice, sunny, warm weather. It was a beautiful place, and since we've been back, we found it very beautiful. But during that time, this was the late 1950s, 1960 time frame, and it was just not too long after the war, so things were very, very tough. Mm. in Italy, and a lots, of, uh, lots of our relatives immigrated. A lot of them went to Yonkers, New York, and our family went to Toronto in Canada. I see. Have you ever been back to Italy since that, the, the time you came over here? Yes, we've been back a few times. Not as much as I would have liked to, but uh, I went back when I was 16, and then we had a three-week trip back there about 10 years ago, where we saw a lot of our family, so that was really, really enjoyable. That must have been pretty exciting. Yes. Because you probably have very little memory of who these people were and what they look like. And what I, well, you were 16, so maybe you had good good luck on, onto that, but they must have changed so much over the time. Oh, they have. And, well, and, and surprisingly, I still have a few memories of when I was three years old when I left. It's, it's unbelievable, but there were just a few little snippets like getting lost in a grape field and my mother coming running after me yelling at me because I was lost and she found me on a chair sitting there eating grapes. <laughs> of course I thought it was fun but uh, they were all panicked that I was lost out there. Oh, Are you bilingual? Uh, not too bad. I can probably understand Italian at the 50 percent level and my speaking is 30 to 40 percent. If I'm immersed in it that quickly bumps up quite quickly but I haven't been around the language for so long that uh, it's quickly fading away. Yes, but like you say, if you were immersed, like if you spent a whole summer in Italy, you probably would be. I would uh, be quite more fluid. like the 80, 80 yes. to ninety percent. Yes. Ah. I understand that you were interested in a career that I almost went into, which is mechanical engineering. Yes, that's what I spent most of my life at. Uh, I mean, during school, I was always good at math and science. And so it was just a natural progression into engineering. Now, at that time, though, I did like architecture. 
So that part of me was more the design uh, aspect, which I liked, but it just seemed engineering was a better fit at the time, and, and that's what I went into. I liked the design part also, and I was very good at uh, science, physics in particular. But math, that was a whole different ball game for me. I really had to work at it, and uh, I didn't enjoy working at it. Like I said, I'm just not a natural. You know, you need to be a lot better at, at math than I am to be a good engineer. So I switched directions, went to a different track. You and your father did woodwork together. We did, yes. He was, uh, he was both a carpenter and a mason and built a number of homes. And he would always do a lot of the fine work. So built-in cabinets, uh, sort of customized cabinets and customized masonry work in the home. And I was always around when that kind of work was going on. So I kind of naturally picked up a little bit of that attention to detail and doing the craft in a really meticulous way that looked, that looked pleasing. Well, there's a big difference between rough carpentry construction and fine carpentry doing the finish work. Yes, a very big difference. So your father didn't do the, the building aspect of it. He just did the fine carpentry. He did a bit of both. But when it came to the finer project the projects, he normally was called on to do that. Well, did you ever actually work at that? Not. I was always the helper, so the helper. I didn't really work at that. Mm -hmm. You were the gopher. Yes, <laughs> yes. But since I'd been around it so much, uh, after we got married, there was a lot of places in our home that needed furniture. And that just sort of led me to basically building my own furniture and getting my hands dirty with wood and, you know, understanding power tools and creating my own unique furniture designs as well. So that's kind of what led me into the world of wood. Most furniture needs to have some kind of feet or legs to it where wood turning would come in. Is, is that how you wound up pursuing wood turning or were you already proficient at wood turning? Well, it's interesting you ask that because that's exactly how I fell into wood turning and it was really by accident. I had been producing some really nice pieces like curio cabinets and armoires and then I had this idea that I wanted to make a really interesting looking uh, curly maple washstand mm. and it required four turned legs. So at the time I didn't have a lathe and the uh, the washstand required some special tools, so I ended up taking a six-week session at a local high school where I could use their equipment for the most part. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really training. I, I got to use their nicer equipment. So I went in, and the first part of it, I prepared all the things I needed for my piece of furniture, but then it came to the time that I had to turn the legs. So I went to the, the shop teacher, who at that time had, didn't have to help me with anything. I was able to do everything myself. But when it came to the lathe, the shop teacher said, well, lots of shop teachers aren't very good wood turners. Uh, there's the lathe, here's the tools, and go ahead, try to make your own legs. <laughs> well, it was the hardest thing I'd ever tried. I, I just could not make the tools do what I wanted. The shapes were going all over the place. It was really difficult. Well, that and, wasn't exactly good instruction you got there. Yeah, so I turned three legs, the in the six-week session was over, and I had to turn one more leg. What was I going to do? 
I went to the shop teacher and he said, well, as it turns out, there's a wood turning guild that meets in our particular high school once a month. He said, they are very good wood turners, very helpful, and they'll help you get your final leg turned. So I, I went to one of the meetings and sure enough, there was all kinds of interesting stuff there. They had a show and tell table. And for the most part, though, all the stuff was on, on the table was kind of artsy looking. And I'm thinking, at the time, I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't have any interest in any of that stuff. I just need to turn this final leg. Right. So I, I hooked up with the president of the guild, and he took me over to his place, and he showed me how to turn properly. And I thought, oh, wow, this is kind of interesting. This is not really like woodworking. This is more, there's a lot more skill involved in this. So I turned the final leg. I kept going to the meetings. And sure enough, after six months, you know, I was looking at the show and tell table and I was saying, well, I don't really want to turn legs anymore. I want to turn those vases and bowls and more interesting artistic uh -huh. looking things okay. that all these other guys are doing. Very good. Well, I noticed in your bio that you are continuing to be very active in a variety of woodturners guilds. Which ones are you associated with, and, and why multiple guilds? Yeah, what I, I like connecting with all the various uh, woodturners in my area. And, and the way to do that is through a club or a guild. And woodturners really share their, their skill, their craft, their art. And I just find it really helpful that way to meet them. And here in the U.S., and in particular in our local area here, I'm a member of the Peace River Woodturners in Port Charlotte and the Sarasota Woodturners in Sarasota. And then back home in Ontario, I'm a member of three clubs, one in our local community, Peterborough, and then there's two clubs in the Toronto area. And it's just a great way for me to network. Uh, I do demonstrations and, you know, you just speak with people of like mind and, and like skills and like interests. Yes, we keep on talking about wood turning, but I suspect that there are some people listening right now that don't have a clue what wood turning is. So why don't you explain what that is? Well, the, the first thing that's important to sort of keep in mind with wood turning is that it's, it's something that's produced on the lathe. So it's spinning in front of you and you use tools to create that. Unlike a lot of other, other things, in this case, the wood is turning and your tool is stationary, and you create a shape. And the shape is typically created from, basically from, from the thoughts you have in your head in terms of the form and function that you're looking for. Now, as people start out, I would say a lot of their pieces are craft, not really art, because they're making very simple vases, very simple bowls, and very simple shapes. But as they develop, some people take it to the next level, and now they're making much more interesting-looking things that uh, that look a little more, a little bit more like glass or pottery. I should ask you a very important question that maybe a lot of people are thinking about: is what is the difference between art and craft? Well, the way I see it, craft is something that is typically functional. So if I'm making some candlesticks or if I'm making a bowl to be used for salad, I kind of consider that more of a craft. 
even if it's a small vase that you're just going to put some dried flowers in. Again, I think that's, that is really craft. But then as people get into wood turning more, more through their lives and they have influence from other areas, some people sort of take it to the next level and, and take it to art where all of a sudden the piece is really not functional. It's, it's artistic and, and it's made to be looked at and put on a shelf and looked at or put on a wall and looked at. There's really no intent for the piece to be functionally used in any way. And, and sort of the next level I've done with my work is I start introducing color or texturing or carving or even burning on some of my pieces or a, even some pen and ink work on some of my pieces. So it, it sort of takes it to a next level where somebody looks at it and just admires it. It's not to be used to put a salad in, for example. Mm -hmm. You made a platter a few years ago and... To me, it was an unusual platter, but as I look at your work online at your website, it's, it's something that you seem to do uh, a lot with, which is a piece that might be 12 to 14 inches in diameter or even bigger, but the middle of it is a very small bowl. All right, so you have this, this flat surface that goes way out from, from the edges of that bowl to to the edges of the platter. And you were doing things artistically on that, that thick edge that goes all the way around. Well, that's a great example of the difference between craft and art. So if you were to make a platter like that that was functional, you'd have a very small rim and a big open section in the center so you could right. actually put something in it. Yes. But with my platters, I like to make a small center and the outside I like to use as a canvas. So that canvas is for whatever artistic thing appeals to me, whether it be carving, or sometimes I, I put to black gesso on the piece and I will carve through it so you can see the wood underneath. I've even done a little bit of scratch board on some of my platters. Yes. And sometimes I uh, texture them and color them, and sometimes I do wood burning. So it, it, it's kind of like a canvas to do something with. Did you always have this skill at drawing? Because you, you are drawing trees and, uh, and, like you say, like a side profile of a person and other kinds of things. It's funny. I never thought I had an artistic skill. Doing three-dimensional objects seemed to come natural because I could see form. I'd looked at pottery. I'd looked at glass through the years. And a lot of it has similar pleasing shapes. But when it came to actually drawing something, I found it a bit difficult. I struggled with it a little bit. I took a couple of classes, fortunately, that helped me get over that. And, and now I'm a bit more comfortable with it. And the things I draw, I try not to make them look realistic. They're basically my interpretation mm. of what I want to put on the piece, right. particularly trees. For trees, it's definitely my interpretation of what a tree might look like and sometimes it has to sort of be complementary to the wood and the grain as well. Well, I'm glad you said that, that you're not too concerned about, about what it is. Because to me, an artist, when they're, they're drawing a tree, to me, it's a representation of, of the real thing. Where some other people who are very, very particular about their trees, they say, well, that doesn't look like 
a magnolia tree. Well, wait a minute. It's, it's a tree. How do you know it's supposed to be a magnolia tree? The artist put a tree in the scene. That was it. So. Exactly. It doesn't matter at all. I think it's just whatever the artist's interpretation of what he likes to see. And, and that's, that's the way I do mine. It's, it's what I like. So it's not very often that I'm, I'm asked to do something specific. And, and even if I was... I'd, I'd still want to put my little own interpretation on it because then it's a piece of art. Otherwise, you're just copying something. So, so that that's what I prefer to do. Just, just have it to be reflective of what's coming out of my own mind, really. Sure, and that's wonderful thinking. And I'm going to let us take a break right now, Frank. And listeners, we are going to be back in just a moment after this message. Hi, this is Janie Duke from the Glass Duchess Studio. I listen to my favorite podcast, Where We Talk Art. We are back, and you are listening to Where We Talk Art, and we are talking to Frank Di Domizio, who is an excellent wood turner. And we were just talking a little bit about the difference between art and craft, and Frank has some wonderful art pieces. Now, Frank, if people want to see your pieces on online, where, where do they have to go to see them? Well, the best place to see my pieces is really my website. It's just frankdidamizio.com. But I also do have a Facebook page and Instagram account and in fact I even have a YouTube channel so there's a, a quite a few different places to see some of my work but probably the best place would be the website frankdidomizio.com that's correct all right so it's just your name and a dot com so that oh why don't you spill the name your last name for for listeners so they make sure that they're finding the right person yeah, the last name is spelled D-I-D-O-M-I-Z-I-O. Just like it sounds. Yes. Yes. All right. You do teaching. Yes, I do, actually. It's, it's quite a bit of, of the, uh, the work that I do that, that revolves around my wood turning. I basically, I kind of split my wood turning into sort of three different things. One is creating pieces for my galleries. A second is basically doing some art shows. And the third is teaching. And I like to teach just to get new people interested in, in, in wood turning and, and just to promote it. And uh, it, that keeps me quite busy. I do one-on-one -on -one teaching out of my studio. And typically it's sort of uh, five to six to seven students a month, uh, almost always one-on-one, -on -one. and uh, yeah, that keeps me hopping quite a bit. And most of the students are at the beginner stage, so they're interested in basically what tools are used, uh, how does the equipment work, how do I make the cuts properly and safely. Very often at that stage, they're not very knowledgeable or interested in shape and form, although I try to I try to do a little bit of discussion of that during the class. Uh, sometimes I do get intermediate students, and then we're 
more into what does the shape of, of the piece look like? Are you using good proportions? Are you using the, you know, good artistic uh, visual balancing with two-thirds and one-third, that sort of thing? All right. And when you give lessons, the, is, is a lesson like an all-day lesson, or is it broken up into a series of lessons, like here at the Visual Arts Center? Uh, typically, when I do a one-on-one -on -one class, it's, uh, it's, it's an all-day session, basically, from 8.30 till 4.30, so it runs all day. And the student takes, takes away notes and a couple of projects he or she takes away with them. And in fact, I've just started giving my students access to a couple of private YouTube videos which summarize exactly what we did in the class. So oh, that's, that's a, that's a bit of a bonus. I, I don't know of any other instructor that's doing that kind of thing. Yeah, so they, because they're, they're being exposed to a lot of information in, in one session, and they might be going home saying, oh, wait a minute, what did Frank say how to do, about how to do this? But now they can look at the video. That's, exa that's exactly right. A lot of them through the day are saying, oh, wow, this is information overload. I didn't realize there were so many things to yes. think about. Yes. I'm so sure that, that, so that really helps. Yeah. I've operated lathes, but wood lathes just not very much at all. You know, I've made some pens and I've made uh, spindles for an antique crib that I was getting together for, for somebody who... He it was a very, very, very old, no, it was a rocker. That's what it was, an old rocker. But it was missing like about four spindles. So I had to make the ones, make some to replace the ones that were missing. And that was my first experience in wood turning. And it was a bit of a challenge, but I think they came out close enough that someone wouldn't necessarily tell. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's, that's the functional side of, of wood turning. And I do get commissions every so often to make specific spindles or once I had to make uh, a, a big large piece that you hold by hand and it looked like there was a flame on the top of it. It was hmm. for a university gift, basically. And other times I get commissions for uh, unique pieces. So somebody has something that means something to them that came from a tree, either on their yard or uh, in another instance, one fellow had a, a, a large burl from a tree that his father had had for, you know, 40 or 50 years, and he wanted it turned into some kind of memento or some kind of interesting-looking piece that they could keep in the family. So I do some interesting commissions that way, and, and they're a bit enjoyable because they're, they're sort of something different than I would do in my normal course of, right. of work. Mm -hmm. For your beginners, what kinds of projects would you have them do during the course of this instruction? Uh, very often, it, they're fairly simple projects. Uh, we'll do like a, we'll turn a small mallet for uh, like a woodworker's mallet. We'll do a bowl. Uh, we often do a platter. Um, and some for more uh, that are a little bit advanced, I would also do something like a vase or a lidded box. And for even more advanced, we get into live edge bowls. And what is a live edge bowl? So a live edge bowl is where the bark or the very outer edge of the tree is still is still visible on the piece. Uh, and these days, that type of bowl is very, very popular. It is. Yeah, a standard salad bowl, I think, I mean, you can buy those anywhere. And, and a lot of them come from overseas. You know, they don't cost very much. 
So the market for a, a standard salad bowl isn't that much, but as soon as you have a live edge aspect to it, it just looks a lot more interesting. And in a lot of my live edge pieces, I also try to draw a tree with pen and ink right in the middle of, of the live edge bowl, and that makes it even more unique. So then it becomes something that maybe does not get used functionally but is used decoratively? Right. It could be used both. It could be functional, or if the person really likes the look of it, they could use it just as a bit of a showpiece that they put in the center of their table or somewhere in the home. All right. I'm sure people listening have wood bowls in their house. What are some of the do's and don'ts about proper care of wooden bowls? Well, if it's been finished, if the bowl you've purchased or currently have has a finish on it, you really don't have to do hardly anything to it. And I prefer, for the pieces that I make and sell, I prefer to put a finish on it that's basically semi-permanent, in which case you'd never really have to do anything with it. You just wipe it out with a, a damp cloth or something like that. Now, other people, and sometimes people who have bowls in their homes, may have a bowl that's basically just been finished with an oil finish. In that case, it's not a hardened permanent finish, and it needs to be replenished every once in a while. And you typically would just use the same thing you use on a cutting board, some kind of oil beeswax mix or a walnut oil. Is there a product name that you can think of so that people, if they go to the hardware store or wherever, they can say, do you have such and such product? Uh, I can't think of one offhand. Uh, Typically, there's like the butcher block oil, Mm -hmm. and there's many different companies who who make those, and and you can purchase quite a wide variety of those. All right. And you were talking about... um, different kinds of woods, and I, I know that wood turners go to special stores to find these exotic woods. Do we have any of those kinds of stores around here? In, in our local area, there isn't as much as you might think, but, but we do have some. The, one of the better ones is uh, in Sarasota, there's Advantage Lumber. They qu- carry quite a wide variety of wood, both for two-dimensional work uh, large slabs for doing river tables, and they have quite a variety of pieces that you can use for wood turning. Now, it's a very expensive way to acquire your wood. Most wood turners, like myself, prefer to harvest our own trees and our own wood. So uh, I don't do much of it here in, in Florida because I'm here for a short season, but, but back home in Ontario, I have three chainsaws, and anytime I hear about a a big tree that's come down, I'm there, I'm cutting up the pieces, I will cut them to rough shape, and then coat them if I can't get to them immediately, and they need to be coated or otherwise the wood cracks quite quickly. What do you coat them with? Uh, There's a couple of different products you can buy. There's an anchor seal and another uh, glue-based end seal you can get. But these days, I'm just using Elmer's white glue or Elmer's yellow glue, and I just uh, dilute it a little bit, maybe 25% water, 75% glue, and that works just as well as the, uh, the Anchor Seal products that you can buy commercially. And so, so I will, the, the I will perp- coat the ends to prevent cracking. Is it because, does it not crack because you are locking in the moisture? That's correct. So the, when you, a tree, you can think of a tree as 
like a bunch of straws going up and down through the tree and and the grain runs up and down through the tree so when you cut a piece of that tree and you've cut right into the straws on the end grain the wood will dry out very very quickly it's like the water coming out of the straws mm. but on yes. the side grain like on the side of a board uh, the wood dries very very slowly and the differential drying creates cracking so that's what I do with with my pieces if I can I will rough turn each of them and so I'll take them to my lathe when the wood is wet and I'll, I'll rough turn the shape into something that's close to the finished size but it'll be an inch or an inch and a half thick I'll completely coat that piece with end seal and then I'll put them in a cool dark place or for myself I actually have a little homemade kiln at home so instead of taking a year to dry I can get a, a piece finished in maybe maybe six to eight weeks hmm even in the kiln it takes that amount even of time. in the kiln yes because wow. if you try to dry too quickly it'll still promote cracking I didn't realize that. Yeah, but I have a low temperature kiln. It's just light bulbs in there. You know, the temperature is not that hot, right. but, it, but it's very stable and consistent. Mm -hmm. And there's airflow through it that takes the moisture away. Uh, typically, if people have think of kilns when they're drying lumber, and that's usually one inch lumber. Yes. And they uh, they put the temperature quite high, and that wood gets dried very quickly. But it. it almost case hardens the wood. The wood becomes very, very hard. That kind of kiln, first of all. And secondly, they don't want to case harden their wood. No, I wouldn't think so. No, no. they want it the same consistency all the way through. Okay. My brother, he's worked with wood in as a carver. He's made lots of beautiful things from, from carving with a, with a knife. And one day I was telling him about uh, a piece of uh, turned wood that I saw, I guess it was a composite of different woods glued together and then it goes on the lathe and you have a section that's dark brown, sections that are light brown, sections that are purple, and sections that are black, you know, because of all these different woods. So when my brother heard about the purple, he said, oh yeah, he said, uh, you know, you gotta be real careful with that wood. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you don't wanna breathe that dust. So I never thought of it before that dust from woods can be unhealthy or, 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 or toxic even. So do you have to take precautions when, when you're turning wood? Oh, yes, definitely. When I used to do woodworking, I wasn't so concerned about it. But as soon as you start wood turning, there's so much more dust thrown into the air, particularly when you're sanding the piece on your lathe. And it's surprising that a lot of the woods are much, much more toxic than anyone even thinks about. Um, and even the local woods, walnut is a very, very bad wood, for example. It's very toxic. In fact, walnut shavings that you get from any kind of woodworking or wood turning, you never put those uh, like in a horse pen. They just really, really hurt the, the horse's hooves. Wow. And they're really I had bad never heard your, of this. Yeah, they, they're bad for your lungs. Cedar is another bad one. Very, very bad for your lungs. What? Yes, oh, very bad. People, and, people sit in saunas well, well, that's made okay, of cedar. Because it's not airborne. Oh. So if it's not airborne, it's not a problem. Okay. So what I'm talking about is dust that gets into your lungs. All right. So, so lots of woodworking. You don't create that much dust, and there's usually vacuum systems around. In wood turning, it's much harder to capture the dust, 
So I wear a respirator that is also a face shield the entire time that I do my wood turning. So it keeps uh, my lungs clean and, uh, and it keeps my face protected. Is, is there some type of uh, source of, to suck the, uh, the, the air th through your mask so you're constantly breathing a filtered air or fresh air? Yes, yeah. The, the filter system I have, the respirator system, basically has a little uh, pack on the back that has a HEPA filter and it filters out all the, the bad particles and, and the very minute particles and and then it pushes sort of clean air in front of your face which is nice and cool and it just makes the whole experience much easier and safer. I, I noticed on one of your videos on YouTube that you're wearing quite a bit of safety equipment. You're wearing gloves, you got some kind of a jacket that I think is specific to to the activity. You've got the full helmet on because of the air filtration. Uh, you have your face covered in the, in the shield, right? So, um, have you ever been injured doing woodwork? Uh, I have not uh, doing woodworking. I've taken a little bit of a nip out of my thumb on the table saw, oh. but with woodworking, no. I'm I've never had a problem. I've had a few over 25 years of wood turning. I've only ever had two pieces come off the lathe. One because there was quite a crack through the piece to start with that I did not really notice. It was a burl, mm. and the crack was not that visible. Um, but it, it, the piece came off safely, didn't hit me. If it had hit me, though, I, had my face, I would have had my face shield on, which would have been fine. And then there was another time I was doing kind of an off-center artsy piece and uh, I was kind of pushing it to the limits with the speed and off-centeredness of, of the work and it came off. But again, it came off in a way that did not, uh, did not hurt me at all. It, it sort of came off parallel or sorry, perpendicular to the lathe and I was on the other side of it so it was fine. So when you're standing in front of the lathe, there's an area that's sort of called the uh, the line of fire, where the piece can can be thrown. If the piece is thrown off, that's where it will be. So when wood turners first start out, they're often told try not to stand in the line of fire. Now, if you're careful and you have the the piece well supported, and you're confident with your cuts, you really should never have a problem. So. You know, I've turned thousands of pieces over the last 25 years and only had two that came off the lathe. Mm -hmm. All right. Before we wrap up, Frank, is there anything that you uh, want to share with us that I have failed to uh, lead us to or ask you a question about? Well, the only thing I can think about is that at times uh, I always struggle with, with what to work on next and where my inspiration takes me. And oftentimes I find that's often dictated by what people want to buy. And as an artist, you really should not be influenced that way. So I like contemporary pieces and I like organic live edge pieces. And, and sometimes the organic live edge pieces sell a lot more so than my artistic uh, contemporary pieces. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a bit of an internal struggle at times. Uh, you know, I like to do both. You know, if I had to choose only one, I would probably do the more contemporary-looking pieces. However, they don't—they just don't often sell quite as well. So uh, 
I know you shouldn't be influenced by that as an artist, but... Uh, but you have to pay for those lathes in the wood. Yeah, you have to pay to, to keep going and enjoying your, your hobby and your art. That's right. Well, there's one last thing I want to ask you, which is, if somebody is interested in learning more about woodworking and actually wants to try it him or herself, where can they go in this area to, to find people who have a lathe or give instruction in how to do to wood turning? In this area, we're pretty fortunate. We have a, a pretty active club. It's called the Peace River Wood Turners, and they actually have a little gallery there, and they do a bit of teaching out of that facility as well. So it's, it's a great place to sort of just get an introduction into the whole wood turning field and to see if you're interested in it and, and see what some of the products are that are made. And uh, yeah, I'd highly recommend it. The next closest would be Sarasota. That's not close. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even in Fort Myers, there's a, there's a wood turning club in Fort Myers as well. So if they Google wood turning in my area, you know, just that phrase, that's, wood turning in my the way area. To do it. Yeah. They probably would come across those two organizations and yes. where they're located and who the contact people are. That's the, exactly the way to do it, yes. All right, very good. Frank DiDomizio. That's a great name. It almost sounds like an actor's name. It's hard to pronounce, though. So. It's, it's a mouthful, yes. yes. Um, we had a really good talk. I learned a lot more about wood turning than I knew before. And you are a very, very talented wood turner. I, I really recommend people to go to Frank's website because he, I think you would be very surprised at how beautiful some of these pieces are. They're just really, really gorgeous. Thanks hey. for being on the program. Well, thank you for having me, Victor. I really enjoyed the session and uh, it was quite interesting. Thanks a lot for having me. You're very welcome. Listeners, thank you for your time. You know, some people like to listen when they're in the car, when they're sometimes when they're just going for a walk. That's usually, I guess, when I tell your friends about, about the podcast. Support your local artists. Support your local art center. Until we meet again, be well. Thanks for listening to the Partnership for the Arts talk show. 